Well, I'd like to say welcome to our Grace family and to all of you who are tuning in this morning. Uh, before this uh, coronavirus thing uh, kind of swept over our world, um, I was in a 10-week series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to continue that today. I'll give you a little brief update on uh, where we've been so far. So those of you who are new will understand that. But I just wanted to mention that um, there'll be some of you that are tuning in today that are not Bible people. You've not grown up around the Bible. And I don't want you to feel intimidated at all by this. We're going to put the words up on the, uh, the screen so you'll see those. But I just wanted you to know that um, the Bible is an amazing book. And um, if you have one of these now, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, you contact us and we'll mail you one. We have Bibles here at the church. We'll be happy to mail you one. But uh, this is an amazing book. And I just want to say to all of our audience, um, this one simple thing. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. It's an incredible book. Um, you will find God's word. You will find truth. You will find hope and inspiration and conviction, all of those things. So just a heads up to read your Bible. Now, uh, those of you who have been with us, uh, we had an assignment for you, and I want to review that assignment. The first part of the assignment was to read the book of 2 Corinthians every week, which means two chapters a day, Monday through Saturday, and then one chapter on Sunday. If you do that, you will have this word in you, and it will really be a great blessing to you. I know uh, some of you guys have been doing that, and I appreciate that. Uh, I know uh, Sherry and I have read through it many times, and we're glad that uh, you will do that. Now, the second part of your assignment was to what? Sherry, say it loud. Pay attention. Pay attention. <laughs> and you're supposed to pay, because the title of this series is Be Encouraged. You're supposed to pay attention how God has encouraged you and how you can encourage others. So we'd like you to just kind of pay attention to what God's doing around you. So that's what you're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to finish up our study in 2 Corinthians in the next three Sundays. Uh, today, chapters 10 and 11. Uh, next Sunday, chapter 12. And then the last Sunday, chapter 13. After that, I will begin a brand new series called... Um, uh, Courage to Stand, and it will be studies in the book of Jeremiah. And the reason I'm doing Jeremiah is in Jeremiah's day, 7th century B.C., the world was just going crazy, and it was just nuts, and uh, very similar to what we're experiencing today. So I think it will be a really good word for us uh, beginning the Sunday after Mother's Day. Okay, I'm not going to mess with Mother's Day. We're going to talk about Mother's Day, but uh, the Sunday after Mother's Day. So welcome to each and every one of you to um, our service today. Uh, I'd like to invite you, if you will, just to pray as I pray over the sermon. If you feel comfortable extending your hands, do this as a sign of receptivity to the word. Father, uh, here we are um, in many homes all throughout uh, our country and even some throughout the world. Father, we are so thankful that we can gather uh, this way uh, through our technology that has provided us the opportunity to hear each other, to see each other, and we're so thankful for that. Father, here's my prayer for today, uh, that this word from 2 Corinthians would fill us in such a way that we would be blessed, that we would be informed, that we would be convicted, and that we would be called to a new level of our love and trust for you. Uh, may this word be in us and around us, and may the Holy Spirit seal that in our lives. 
And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, for our regular attenders and new listeners, I would like to uh, do a brief overview of where we've been. That's how we started the series uh, many, many weeks ago. So uh, this book was written by Paul. Paul was a Pharisee who was confronted in a wonderful way by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him 17 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, 17 years after the resurrection. Jesus appeared to Paul, knocked him off his socks, and uh, he was transformed and became probably the most influential Christian that ever lived, the Apostle Paul. So uh, this is about 50 AD. Paul's on his first missionary journey, and he goes to uh, Greece and visits a lot of different places in then what was known as Macedonia. And one of those places was Corinth. He spent more time in Corinth than he did in any other place in the early part of his, in, in his whole ministry. 18 months, he was in Corinth. Now, while he was there, uh, he started a church. He planted a church, and, um, and this church was filled with all kinds of different people. Uh, uh, pagans who became Christ followers, Jews who became Christ followers, um, uh, Gentiles who became Christ followers, all kinds of different people. Now, Corinth was a, um, a, a, a town right on the ocean. It's kind of a, a port, um, similar to uh, San Francisco, Vancouver, San Diego. And it came with all of those problems. Uh, there were sailors coming and going. There was The town was filled with, as many cities are today, filled with immorality and all kinds of foreign religions. And a lot of stuff was going on during that time. So Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians. Two of them have remained over time. One of the letters was lost early on, but we have two of those letters. The first letter to the Corinthians was confronting their immorality and their uh, love for other gods. And uh, then Paul came to uh, uh, this time when he wrote a second letter, coming back on his second missionary journey, and he wrote a letter, a second letter, and there he established three things, and that's what our book that we've been studying is about. The first thing is to restore his pastoral relationship with the Corinthian people. Uh, the believers had gotten sideways. They thought that Paul should stay with them all the time, but Paul was busy planting other churches all through Asia Minor, all through Macedonia. Uh, but they thought, well, he's our pastor. We want him all the time. But he was gone a lot, and so they got a little bit sideways with him. And so Paul wanted to reestablish his love and respect and pastoral relationship uh, with the people at Corinth. The second thing he wanted to do was to encourage them. And that's what this whole book is titled, Be Encouraged. He wanted them to encourage them in their life in Jesus. He wanted to encourage them with their life with each other. And he really wanted to encourage them in the act of generosity. What does it look like to be generous uh, to your other brothers and sisters in Christ and to the world? What does that look like? So that was the second thing he wanted to establish. The third thing he wanted to establish was his apostolic authority. Uh, false prophets, false teachers, false apostles were sneaking into the church at Corinth and causing all kinds of problems. So Paul wanted to reestablish his apostolic authority. We read these words in 2 Corinthians 1.4. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. So there was that mutual comfort. God says, I'll comfort you, 
and you comfort each other. Is there ever a more appropriate time in our world than to experience the comfort of God than right now? Is there ever a time more in our world when we need to extend the comfort of God from us to each other than it is right now? That's what Paul was saying in the the first chapter of his book. Then the second week, we looked at um, God's ultimate yes. Because God has said yes to all of his promises, to all of his blessings through Christ. Everything we read in the Old Testament and the early part of the New Testament, everything we read, every time God gives us a promise or a blessing, when Christ came to the earth, when Jesus died for our sins, when Jesus was raised from the dead, we just talked about that last Sunday, all of that was to say yes to God's promises and blessings. Yes, yes, and yes. Yes, you are forgiven. Yes, God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yes, you have the assurance of your salvation. Yes, his love for you is eternal. Yes, you have mercy and grace. Yes, yes, and yes. That's what Paul's message was. And in response to that, right, we as disciples respond to him by saying what? Yes. Yes. Okay. And when we read something in God's word and we feel like, oh, this is what God wants us to do to encourage somebody or to bless somebody. He wants us to share our faith with somebody. When we're looking at something, oh man, I don't know if I want to do that, God. I don't know if that's for me. But we say, as a Christ follower, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we say, yes. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if I don't fully understand it, even if I really don't know all the nuances My answer, because I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, my answer is yes. So that's what we did on the second week. Then we moved into the next few weeks. Oh, first first we looked at forgiveness. And and we we spent a whole Sunday on forgiveness. That uh, God has commanded you to forgive. He has commanded us to forgive each other. And the third part of that forgiveness, this is really interesting, he confounds Satan. There is nothing that confounds Satan more than when we forgive each other. And especially when we forgive uh, people who are our enemies. See, we're the only religion in all of the world. We're the only religion that demands that we forgive our enemies. Everybody else says, now just nuke them. But we say we forgive our enemies. So that was the third week. Then the next few weeks we talked about this motif between the old and the new. Uh, The old covenant versus the new covenant. The old covenant is what we do on the outside, how we behave, what we do, how we walk, how we talk. All of that's good stuff. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is we have been transformed by Jesus on the inside. The old covenant is about religion. The new covenant is about a relationship. The old covenant is about the law. Do, 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 do. The new covenant is about grace. God has already done, 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 right? The old covenant is about works. We've got to do the right thing so that God will like us. The new covenant is about faith. Jeremiah, who we're going to start looking at in a few weeks, Jeremiah said, my instructions are deep within me. God's instructions are deep within me. So that's the old covenant and the new covenant. Thank God we are in the new covenant, that time of grace in the world. Then he contrasted in chapter 5 the old body versus the new body. Now, the Bible talks about how that our body is like uh, a tent. 
And one person, it might have been Cindy, said, I feel like my tent pegs are coming loose. (laughs) All of us, those of us who have spent a few years on this planet like I have, um, you kind of feel like some of your tent pegs are coming loose. And... uh, But that's our old body. Our old bodies are decaying. Our old bodies are degrading. All of us are. No matter how old you are, you are moving onward towards death. Hope that's not bad news, but that is news. Okay, so that's the old body. But Jesus said, you have a new body. Like Jesus had a new body after he was resurrected. You could touch him. He was absolutely perfect in every detail. He could walk through walls. Nothing stopped him. You could hear him. You could touch him. You could see him. But he had a brand new restructured molecular somehow that he has a brand new body. That is his spirit body for the rest of the eternity. Guess what? You and I will have the same kind of body. A brand new body. So the old body versus the new body. Then we looked at another um, uh, motif. The old life versus the new life. First, Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And out of that, we came up with this phrase that I want you to repeat, everybody at home. When you know who you are, you will know what to do. Say that with me. When you know who you are, you will know what to do. When you know that you have been saved and redeemed by Jesus, when you know that your life has been transformed, when you know that you're on this planet to bear witness to the love of Jesus, to everyone that you see, and to love God, when you know that, you will know what to do. So then we looked at this whole beautiful idea of who we are. We are recreated. We are reconciled, which means we're put back together. We are righteous, not in our own goodness, but we have, the Bible says in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, we have the righteousness of Christ in us. When we say yes to God and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have his righteousness in us. So we are recreated, we are reconciled, we are righteous, and the last thing is we are representatives. The Bible says we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is the highest ranking diplomat sent as a representative from one country to another. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We, all of us here, are the highest ranking diplomats sent from God, from heaven, to the earth to represent him on this planet. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We get to be his ambassadors. So, When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. And then last week, um, or two weeks before we put our pause on 2 Corinthians, uh, we talked about generosity, about how um, God has been generous to us, not just in money and possessions, but generous in grace and love and forgiveness. But when when we've experienced the generosity of God, we are inclined, not inclined, we are actually can't, ha- can't wait until we can be generous to others. And Paul used the example how that uh, there was a church in Jerusalem that was really struggling. Remember the Christians in, this is uh, 50 AD. Uh, now Nero's not in, in rule yet, but things are really bad for Christians. And um, so they were being boycotted. They couldn't get good jobs. They couldn't get money. They, uh, they had a very hard time. So the church in Jerusalem was really struggling financially. They had nothing. And so Paul asked the churches in Macedonia, and specifically the church in Corinth, 
Can you help? And Paul writes that out of their extreme poverty, these churches were poor too. They were also boycotted. Uh, These churches had nothing. But it says out of their extreme poverty, they gave richly to the church in Jerusalem. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 8.5. They even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted, uh, wanted them to. Their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. When your first action is to give yourself to the Lord, you will find yourself being very generous with your money, your talents, your resources, everything that you have and everything you are. So that brings us to today. We are going to be talking about this important subject of false prophets or false apostles. Several factions now had infiltrated the church in Corinth. From the Greek side, it was the Sophists, S-O-P-H-I-S-T. And this was a philosophy that said you can reach truth through virtue or excellence. Uh, Mostly, this was kind of the beginning of secular atheists. And those were the Sophists. Uh, It was kind of influenced, not completely, but it was kind of influenced by Aristotle and Plato in the 4th century B.C. So that was sophists, uh, the secular atheists. So they had been sneaking into the church. Then on the Jewish side, uh, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was that ism that uh, elevates knowledge. The only thing that matters is getting your degree from university. The only thing that matters is getting your PhD. The only thing that matters is you learn more and more and more stuff. The body, what you do with your body, how you treat it, what you do with it, doesn't matter in the least. It's only about your brain, right? Gnosis. And then there was a third group, the Judaizers. These were uh, Jews who had been very faithful in their faith that would add to their Judaism, Jesus. Jesus plus Judaism. Jesus plus anything, Paul said, is nothing. Jesus plus anything is nothing. So here these uh, Judaizers were saying, well, you know, Jesus is good, but I still need to be circumcised. Or, yeah, Jesus is good, but I still need to go to the temple and uh, sacrifice a lamb. You know, and they had all these things. And Paul comes along and said, listen, all to all of you groups, all of you false teachers, we're going to get this thing right. And here's the thing that you've got to get right. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else, nothing to add to. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. So let me read for you from our text this morning. Uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 4, and then verses 12 to 15. And remember, he's talking about these Judaizers, these three categories, Sophists, Gnostics, and uh, Judaizers. And he's talking to the church about these groups that infiltrated the church. I begin reading at verse 1. I hope you'll put up with a little more of my foolishness. He's been kind of doing a... Uh, Uh, foolish talk to help them understand what he's saying. Please bear with me, for I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ, but I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach or a different kind of spirit than the one you received or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. And then verse 12. But I will continue doing what I have always done. 
This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. Listen, these people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it gives no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Uh, In the message, which is another uh, uh, translation by Eugene Peterson, in the message, this is what uh, verse 13 sounds like. They're a sorry bunch. Pseudo-apostles, lying preachers, crooked workers, posing as Christ's agents, but sham to the core. I love that translation, sham to the core. Now, some of the words in chapters 10 and 11 seem odd, but Paul is engaging in what he calls fool's speech, a kind of tongue-in-cheek literary irony. So um, that's how he's kind of dealing with this. But he gives us three word pictures of what this looks like, what we are supposed to be aware of and be careful of with false teachers or false apostles. And the bottom line of all of these is this one truth. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Yeah, you look over here, you look over there, you say, what, I hear all these philosophies, all these religions, all these isms. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Picture number one, a jealous father of the bride. So um, I met Sherry this spring, March, just last month, 50 years ago. I was a senior at San Diego State University. She was a freshman at Grossmont College, and we met at church, and uh, her world was turned upside down. Although I should say <laughs> my world was turned upside down. Hers came a little bit later. Uh, but uh, we had this amazing, fast courtship. We fell in love right away. It was amazing. And uh, I remember meeting her dad, and, uh, and he really liked me because I was an athlete. He was an athlete. At the time, I was 21. He was 40 years old. Uh, we'd play basketball, we played church softball together. It was just really neat. He, he just really, he had three daughters. So I was the cat's meow. I was a, I was a guy, you know, that could play sports. And, and so we had this great relationship. And he loved the fact that I was an engineer. He loved it because I was making a good salary. As I was finishing up my last year of college, I was making a really great salary, a place called Chemtronics in San Diego. And he loved that because what? I was going to take care of his daughter. And that was good. And he said, I'm glad you're a Christian, but I'm really glad you've got a good job. You know, that's a, do- that's a dad speaking, right? So, so a few months after that, I was at a Youth for Christ rally, and I heard a speaker speak, and I felt in that moment God's call on my life to ministry. And I didn't know how to approach it, but I told my boss at Chemtronics, can I have a leave of absence for a year? I've got to figure this out, but I think I'm supposed to go into the ministry. And so he said, of course, you can have your years, years leave of absence. I'll tell you that story another time. But um, the bottom line was this. Dad was not happy. <laughs> I went from making 10000 a year in 1970 money to 150 bucks a month as a part-time youth pastor. Dad was not happy. He pulled me aside. He said, now, son, I, I respect what you're trying to do. The God thing is awesome and everything, but come on, you've got to be able to take care of my daughter. Because a dad should always be jealous for his daughter. A dad should be jealous for his bride. Every father should be jealous for his children, especially his daughter. 
Now, there's a difference between jealous of someone and jealous for someone. Jealous of someone is uh, you're jealous of something they've done or achieved or they have, right? But to be jealous for someone, this is the way that Paul is using this phrase, to be jealous for someone is to protect them, desire that no harm comes to them, and that they are saved and preserved for their intended purpose, that bride. And that is for the bridegroom. That was Paul. Now, the picture's a little bit clearer if I use kind of a Texas twist, okay? So bear with me. Uh, by the way, how many of you are from Texas? Anybody in here? No? Anybody out there in the audience? Okay. Cindy, Cindy, shout out to you. She's in Texas watching this, okay? Uh, this is for you. So um, Paul is saying, you know, Daddy's sitting on the front porch <laughs> in a rocking chair with a shotgun over his lap. <laughs> and these teachers and apostles come walking along. He said, now, you're, you're going to do what with my daughter? You know, you better get off of my property or you're going to feel some buckshot and you're behind, you know. And so he just chases them. That's what Paul was saying. Beware of these people. They're going to take away the bride. Now, who is the bride? The bride of Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. The bride of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the building, not this building. I'm talking about the people. The church of Jesus Christ is every person who has said yes to Jesus. They are part of the family of God. They are part of the bride of Christ. And one day, the Bible says, it even refers to it here, one day Jesus will return for the second time. He'll return and he will take the bride to himself. Okay, that's, what, that's kind of that imagery that he's using. Author Steve Zeisler describes this passage this way. Paul came to Corinth and became their spiritual father. And the church was born in Corinth, was readied as a bride for her husband. Now, since the Lord had not yet returned, and he still hasn't 2,000 years later, right? They should be waiting patiently, growing in love with their beloved, looking forward to the day when the bridegroom will come for the bride, when Jesus will come for us. But instead, they were being seduced by good-looking, fast-talking, spiritual gigolos (laughs) who were turning the head of the bride. They were listening to voices that offered other opportunities, seducing them away from the one for whom they were intended. Paul said, don't let that happen to you. Now, I understand as a father, you want to protect and have concern for your kids. But Paul said, listen, you be careful. These gigolos are going to try and take the bride of Christ, the church, my individual people that I've led to Jesus, and take them away to some other philosophy. Paul said it this way, God is jealous for you. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. That's takeaway truth number one. God is jealous for you. The day after I proposed uh, to Sherry, uh, it was March, honey, help me, 20? March 20, 1970. Uh, I proposed to her by the fire uh, in front of her, at her parents' home in, in uh, Crest, in San Diego. And, uh, and of course, she said, yes, you know, what? <laughs> what was she supposed to do? And uh, she said, but what I found out later is the next day, before I came over to um, actually talk to her parents and explain and tell them, because I'd already asked her dad if he would consent, and he said yes, but I wanted to tell them that it happened. And uh, So before I came over the next day, a guy that she had been at camp with all summer who somehow got the feeling that he loved her and couldn't live without her, you know, came to ask her to marry him the day after I, she said yes to me. 
So yeah, she was, uh, you know, what do they say? They say a hot commodity. That, that was back in the day. Yeah, that's, 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 that was the way that it was. But I'll tell you what, if I had have known that, his name is Bruce. Bruce, if you're out there, I love you in Christ. That's it. Uh, yeah, that's it. No, no mas. Hey, hey, listen, Bruce, if you're out there, if you had to come for my bride, you would have had to go through me. And if that had been the case, you better bring a sack lunch because it's going to be an all-day affair. You're not getting to my bride. That's exactly how Paul felt about the Corinthian believers. I'm so protective of you. I don't want you listening to these other false idols, these prophets, these, these people that are coming with these isms. Jesus is enough. Jesus is all that matters. So that was picture number one. Picture number two, Eve deceived. I say that ten times, right? Eve deceived. In verse 3, Paul paints the second picture. Uh, God's fatherly, jealous love for the Corinthian believers. Don't be tempted by the enemy. Here's what he said, verse 3. But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. We read that before. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Now, for those of you who aren't Bible people, and don't be ashamed of that, a lot of Christians aren't Bible people, so uh, that's all right. If you don't know anything about the Bible, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, it tells the story of how uh, God created the heavens and the earth and how God created man. And he created Adam, and then he created Eve. And then he created this, what you get the word, you get the word Edenic, uh, Edenic from Eden, this perfect uh, Xanadu, this perfect place on earth between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the Mesopotamian area there. That's where the Garden of Eden took place. This beautiful place, a garden filled with fruit and trees and beauty and gorgeousness. And God said, all of this is yours, Adam and Eve, except for that one tree over there. Beware of that. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't go near that. The other billion trees are all yours. Stay away from that one. Okay, And you might ask, well, why do you do that? Well, very simple. God wants us to love him for him. He doesn't want to love him because we have to. And if you had no free will, like to choose another tree, you wouldn't have the freedom to love God. So that's why we have free will. So that happened to Eve and Adam and Eve. So we come to this place. Now, think about Eve. <laughs> Life was so good for her. I mean, really. I mean, uh, she's, this is her sweet spot. I mean, she doesn't have to put up with her mother-in-law's cooking, right? There's no mother-in-law. No former girlfriends. Never once did she say, I don't have a thing to wear. You know, she had probably several fig leaves and she could choose from those. But she, she had it so good. And then along comes Satan and whispers in her ear. Now, I didn't put, it, I didn't put this up on the screen, but I'll read it to you from, uh, from the Bible. This is chapter 3, just the first five verses of Genesis. Listen to this. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals. That's a snake. That's, uh, that's, how, that how, that's how Satan is personified. Um, shrewd, of all the wild animals the Lord had made, one day he asked the woman, this is the serpent, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Did God really say that? Verse 2. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. You won't die. Come on. The serpent says, you won't die, replied the the serpent to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and 
evil. That is the enemy's attacks, always. That is the way he attacks each and every... And it's never in a scream. It's never bullhorn guy. It's always in a whisper. The first thing was, and we'll put these up on the screen, Satan questions God's word. Did God say that? Really? I mean, come on. Isn't he a loving, benevolent God? A loving, benevolent God wouldn't say, have all the fruit you can possibly have, but don't have fruit. He'd say, have it all. Isn't that really? what? So Satan questions God's word, and then Satan changes God's word. Didn't God say you could eat from any tree? <laughs> Forgot that last part about except for that tree, right? Little sidestep, little sleight of hand, little movement there. And then Satan denies God's word. You will not die, you poor things. I mean, you've only got, you know, a billion trees to choose from, and that's the tree probably you want the most. You will not die. I mean, that's just not going to happen to you. And the last thing Satan does, he replaces God's word. This is what all false prophets do. You will be like God if you eat of that fruit. So instead of saying what God said, no, that's not really true. Here's the real truth. And he whispers this. You will be like God if you eat that fruit. The promise of satisfaction. The promise that there is something in this world that will satisfy your soul. The promise that there is something, whether it's, it's, it's a promise of, uh, of drugs or alcohol or sex or power or relationships or wealth or anything else, that something will satisfy your soul. And Paul said, beware, that is not true. Here's takeaway number two. I must guard against false teaching. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus plus anything is nothing. There's a, in our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, we always say that there's two hills that we will die on. The first is this. Every person can experience a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Every person on this planet, there's seven 0.8 billion souls on this planet. And everyone can know a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's truth number one. Truth number two is we believe as a denomination that the Bible is the word of God. It is God breathed. God breathed his breath into the authors as they were writing these words. And we believe that the Bible is true. We must guard from evil, from false teaching. Picture number three, a masked man, a masked man. Listen to this. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. Theologian Robert Deffenbaugh says it this way, Satan does not come to us as the arch enemy of God, the ultimate evildoer. He comes disguised as an angel of light, not as one who promotes evil. He would rather look like Mother Teresa than Charles Manson. If the arch enemy of God operates by deceit and disguise, 
Why would, why would should we expect his underlings to be different from their master? They too come to us disguised as servants of righteousness, or as Jesus said, as wolves in sheep's clothing. Beware of these who come with a different ism, a different philosophy. Take away truth number three. I must recognize authentic teachers of God's word. Just as false teachers in Paul's day, there are false teachers today. They don't wear a badge that says, you know, servant of Satan. (laughs) They could be in a three-piece suit. Most likely, uh, the devil does wear Prada. (laughs) You know, when when banks train their tellers to spot a counterfeit, do you know what they do? They don't teach them about all the counterfeits. They just teach them to know and recognize a real bill. This is a $100 bill. It has this marking, this, that, and the other. And so something that doesn't match that is a counterfeit. That's what we need to understand. We don't need to recognize and believe all the different counterfeits. We need to know the real thing. We need to know Jesus. We need to know his heart. We need to know his love and compassion for the world. That's how we need to know that he is in us. So we see, uh, as teachers of God's word, we see rightly things coming out of our lives that should come out of our lives. Uh, For instance, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, every believer should have these things coming out of their lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, and self-control. That way, when that's coming out of you, you can spot the real thing. Have you ever had an experience, Sherry and I have talked about this many times, where you meet somebody and immediately your spirit bears witness with your spirit that that person is a child of God. And you kind of probe a little bit. You say something about church or something about God and see how... And almost always it's true. There is something that you see out of the fruit of the Spirit in that person that just said, man, that person is a genuine follower of Jesus. So beware of those bullhorn guys. Beware of the guys with the big hair. Beware of those television evangelists, some of them. Beware of those guys, okay? Because if they are angry or argumentative or harsh or poor listeners, guess what? They're probably a false teacher. Here's three questions you can ask. Are they biblical? Now, in order to ask the question, are they biblical, what does that mean? You better know the Bible, right? Otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about. Are they biblical? Are they deeply in love with Jesus? Are they in love with things that Jesus loves? Which, and Jesus loves all people. Jesus loves all religious people. Jesus loves all political people. Jesus loves all people. Do we love all people? And the third thing, are they fruit bearers? Is the fruit of the Spirit coming out of their lives? So that's what Paul is talking about with these three snapshots, these three pictures. A jealous father wanting each and every one of us. He is jealous for you. He loves you with all his heart. He doesn't want you following after any other bridegroom. You're the bride of Christ. You're a children of God. You need to follow Jesus. And then Eve deceived by not hearing and knowing the word of God. Don't let that whisper change you. You need to understand and know God's love from his word. And the third thing, that masked man, Satan is not a hideous monster but he comes in the form of a health and wealth Jesus or promises that are made to make you wealthy or somehow make your life perfect. All of that is from false prophets. We must avoid the enemy's attempt to distract us from the virtual, vital simplicity of a love for Jesus and a love for other people. Satan says it's complicated. You've got to do all these do's and don'ts. You've got to do all these things. And that's why we give up on on religion. Jesus, no. 
It's about loving me and loving the people around you. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth is recognized as one of the great minds of the 20th century. His multi-volume commentary on Romans is a masterpiece of scholarly research. He was visiting a seminary once, and during a Q&A session he was asked, what is the greatest, deepest theological thought that has ever crossed your mind? They all expected some complicated answer, but Karl Barth said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves each and every one of us. And he wants us to be in love with him. He's jealous for you. He wants us to be in love with him and with his word. He wants our lives to be rich and full. And that comes from knowing a God who loves us and is jealous for each and every one of us. That is God's word for you this day. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, um, this word is so exciting to me to know that um, we have this God that is jealous for us and that doesn't want us turning our heads toward any other God but simply seeing Jesus and seeing his love for us, how beautiful and godly that is, how wonderful that is. So Father, my prayer for each and every one of the listeners today is that they would know how much you love them. They would know that your relationship with you is the greatest thing that this earth has to offer. To understand that your love and your grace and your mercy is available to each and every one of us. Thank you, Father, for this truth. May we keep our eyes on Jesus and may we keep our eyes on his word. And we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.